Hi everybody, welcome to Your Move, I'm Andy Stanley. Here's something I bet you already know. Things don't always work out the way we hope they will. Sometimes because of decisions we make, sometimes because of decisions made by other people. So what do you do? What do you do when it dawns on you that your dreams can't come true? Stick around and we'll talk about it right here on Your Move. Today, we're reminded of something that very few of us actually need to be reminded of, but I'm gonna remind you anyway, and then we're gonna place this very, very, very common phenomenon, this thing that we've all experienced within a brand new context for some of you. And for some of you, it's gonna be a reminder. And what today reminds us of is simply this, that life rarely goes as planned. Life rarely goes as anticipated. Plans are good, everybody should plan. I'm married to a planner and I'm so glad I'm married to a planner because I'm not a great planner, but everybody needs a plan. But as great as plans are, the reality is, is that reality is greater than our plans. That reality always trumps our plans. Reality always wins. That things don't always turn out as planned, sometimes because of things that other people do. And sometimes things don't turn out as planned because of things that we do. And at the end of the day, what this means is that some of our dreams won't come true. Worse than that, it means that some of our dreams can't come true. That the two of you, as it turns out, may not live happily ever after. That you may not ever get the opportunity to walk a daughter down the aisle. It means that perhaps you'll never have to purchase or never need to purchase a high chair. Perhaps that second marriage is starting to feel a little bit like that first one, that prodigal son or that prodigal daughter, looks like she may not be coming home. And the thing is, depending on what kind of church you grew up in or what kind of religious background, if you have any at all, as we've seen our dreams begin to crumble and things aren't going in the direction that we thought that they would, there's this internal sense of panic and this internal sense of anger, because after all, God promised you, right? And then you feel like God kind of promised you and maybe God owes you. God owes you because you played by the rules, you did everything right, you raised them right, you behaved, you waited, you know, you did, you know, isn't there a cause and effect? Isn't there sowing and reaping? At times it looks like God has granted somebody else your wish. So today, as we wrap up this series in the life of David, we're gonna ask the question that David's life answers for us. What should we do? What do we do when our dreams can't come true? Now, as we saw a few weeks ago, when David was in his 20s, thanks to the behavior and the decisions of crazy King Saul, David realized that some of his dreams weren't going to come true. About 22 years after David became king, he's in his 50s now. He's no longer the cool kid you know, who killed Goliath. Now he's in his 50s. And 50s, you know, pretty good age to be in our, you know, in our world. But in the ancient times, 50s was old. You probably lost most of your teeth. You were not young and you were not handsome and you smelled bad, okay? So he's not cool King David. Now he's King David in his 50s. This is about, again, he's been king about 22 years. He sends his men off the war. We don't know why he didn't go, maybe because of how old he was at that point. He gets up one night in the middle of the night, famous story. He looks down and he sees Uriah, one of his friends, one of his companions, um, one of the generals or commanders in his army. He sees Uriah's wife bathing. Her name is... Bathsheba, he calls a servant over. He says, who's that? The servant says, that is Uriah the Hittite's wife. 
wife, 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 and David says, send her to me. So Bathsheba comes up to David. Everybody pretty much knows this story. They spend the night together. They probably spent multiple nights together. She sends a message to him. Oh no, I'm pregnant. David decides, hey, I can fix this. He calls for her husband to come in off the battlefield. Give me a report of what's going on. Hey, as long as you're here, you might as well go home. Uriah is a righteous man. He spends the night on the ground outside the um, palace um, gates. David finds out he didn't go home. He says, why didn't you go home to your wife? He said, how can I spend the night with my wife when my men are dying and being slaughtered in the mud? David says, spend one more night. David gets him drunk. David points him toward home, says, go home. The next morning, David gets up. Uriah still hasn't gone home because Uriah isn't gonna spend a night in luxury when his men are dying on the battlefield. He's a good man. So David writes a message to Joab, Uriah's commander. He says, dear Joab, put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle. And when things get really hot, withdraw from him and his bodyguard. It was a death warrant. It was a death sentence. He signs it, seals it, gives it to Uriah, who gives it to Joab. Joab does as the king says, because you can't say no to the king. And Uriah dies in battle. Bathsheba mourns. David brings her in, she's pregnant. And it looks like David, the magnanimous, wonderful man is going to raise somebody else's child. He marries Bathsheba and everything's good and David has managed the outcome, except that this was no secret. In a world where there are slaves everywhere, the walls talk. And so eventually, eventually after they're married, the prophet Nathan makes an appointment with David. He comes in to see David, he tells this fictitious story. David gets really, really, really mad at this guy in the story and Nathan says, hey, by the way, David, you're the guy in the story. And David breaks and he allows the law of God to break him. But here's the problem, and I hope you'll listen to this. Every sin, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a religious person or not, every sin, every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. And that day, as David began to mourn his sin and own his sin, Nathan said this to him. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. What you did in secret, although you did this in secret, I'm gonna do this thing, I'm gonna bring about this calamity in broad daylight before all of Israel. Because you're the leader, you are accountable to the entire kingdom. Because you're the king, you're accountable to the entire kingdom. And I'm gonna bring about a consequence that everybody in the kingdom knows about. And then David said to Nathan, and this is so powerful, I have sinned against the Lord. This is again the reminder that even though David was king and even though he was flawed, he never confused himself with the king of Israel. He never abandoned God's law. He broke it, but then he would allow God's law to break him. And once again, we find him acknowledging his fault and surrendering to the will of God. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but there is going to be an unavoidable consequence for what you did. You had someone who was innocent, murdered, and you tried to hide it, and you tried to lie to the entire nation. So a year goes by, nothing happens. Two years go by, nothing happens. Five years go by, nothing happens. Finally, 10 years later, this consequence takes hold and it turns David's world upside down. And at the end of the story, his dreams can't come true. David's oldest son was a young guy named Amnon. And Amnon, because he was the oldest son, was in line to become the next king of Israel. 
But he, Amnon was consumed with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. So Tamar and Amnon share one parent, but not two. And so Amnon just cannot get her out of his mind, he cannot get her out of his mind. Apparently, she doesn't even know he exists. He just completely ignores him. So finally, he's done everything he can to get her attention, get her attention, and he's just so consumed with lust. So he pretends to be very, very ill. And all of a sudden, all the brothers and sisters know there's something wrong with Amnon, he's very ill. And he sends a word, to da- sends a message to David. And he says, David, is it okay if my sister Tamar prepares a special meal for me? David says, that's fine. She brings the meal over. Um, Amnon sends everybody out of the house and so now it's just the two of them. And he tries to talk her in to going to bed with him. And he begs and begs and begs and he acknowledges, I'm not really sick. I just, you know, I just was trying to get your attention. And she resists, she says, absolutely not. She says, no, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done. We're, we're related. Uh, such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. But the text says, but he refused to listen. And since he was stronger, he raped her. And then this, this next verse is just, it's just gut-wrenching. But again, the, the biographers, the people who bring us this story, they don't skip any of the details. And the text says this, Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred right after he raped her. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Well, she's devastated. She knows that her life is ruined forever. She and this culture will never marry. And there are no secrets in the palace. In fact, there are no secrets to the degree that David finds out. And when King David finds out what his oldest son did to one of his daughters, he's furious. But do you know what he did? Nothing. He did nothing. Who was David to tell anybody how to manage their lives and manage their private lives after what he had done? So David does nothing. Now we enter are introduced to another one of David's sons. His name is Absalom. Absalom is David's third son. We think the second son has passed away by this time. So he's next in line to be king if Amnon is in fact not king. Absalom is Tamar's brother by the same two parents. And Absalom takes Tamar into his home. She's just destitute. And he takes her into his home and he too does nothing. And he never speaks to Amnon. He doesn't speak to him positively. He doesn't speak to him negatively. He acts as if he doesn't even exist. And a year goes by and nothing. And then two years go by and Absalom is so shrewd. And when he thinks that everybody has forgotten what happens, he throws a big feast at his home. He invites the entire family. He even invites David. And David says, I can't come. If I come, it'll be such a burden to your home. And Absalom says, what if I invite all my brothers? And David says, knock yourself out. Y'all have a good time. So Absalom has this big feast, gets everybody good and drunk. And when Amnon is really, really drunk and all the brothers and families are gathered around these tables, he sends his men into the dining hall and they slaughter Amnon in front of all the brothers. And the brothers get up and they flee to Jerusalem and Absalom gets up and he flees north to what we would call Syria. Now, when King David finds out that his oldest son has been murdered by his, what we find out later, his favorite son, King David does nothing. And life just goes on. Three Long years pass and David is missing Absalom. And so David invites Absalom back to Jerusalem, back to the capital. And when Absalom gets there, he's told, you're invited to move back into your home, but the the king refuses to see you. 
And so Absalom, for the next two years, tries to get in to see King David, and King David ignores him, ignores him, ignores him, and Absalom is so furious, you brought me back here, it's like I'm under house arrest. And finally, he was just fed up. So he sends his servants to Joab's farm. Now, Joab is the commander of all of David's armies, and he was the go-between, oftentimes, to get a message to the king. And Joab won't have anything to do with Absalom either. And so um, Absalom sends his um, servants to Joab's farm and he burns down the entire farm. And Joab comes over to Absalom's house finally and says, what are you up to? And Absalom says, would you please tell my father I wanna see him? And Joab agrees, okay, I'll work it out. Well, Joab's smart and he knows that you can't approach David directly, so he sends a woman in. This woman makes up this incredible story, gets David all engaged emotionally in the story, and then basically at the end of the story, the person that David's most frustrated with in the story, she, like Nathan, says, well, my king, um, that's you. You're, you're upset with yourself. And he said, did Joab send you? And she says, uh-oh. She says, yes, Joab sent me. He calls for Joab. And Joab says, king, your highness, please see your son Absalom. He's waited for two years. So Absalom comes in before the king and bows down and David lays his hands on Absalom and it was his way of saying, you're forgiven and our relationship is restored, but it's not. Absalom is hurt and David never calls, the best we can tell, David never calls for his son again. Well, he is so angry and he's so hurt, he decides to overthrow his father and to take the king, to take the, the kingdom and to take the throne himself. Perhaps he thought it's mine anyway, it's mine eventually, I'm going to take it now. So what he does, he was so wise. Every morning, early in the morning, Absalom would get up early and set up a table basically, or set up court outside this gates to the main city. And anyone who was coming to the city to try to get to see David to get justice for some cause, Absalom would say, let me help you. And over time, the text tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. For four years, for four years, he sat outside the gates of the city and would talk to anyone, hear any of their cases. People recognize how smart he was, how wise he was, what a great leader he was. And over time, Absalom stole the hearts of the people. And then four years later, he sets in motion his plot to overthrow his father. So 16 years now, 16 years after David's incident with Bathsheba, 16 years later, David's world is upside down. His firstborn has been murdered by his favorite son, who has now instigated a civil war and is about to divide the entire nation. A messenger came to David. A messenger came to David. The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And when David heard this, apparently he wasn't completely surprised. No doubt he had heard about, heard rumors of this for the past couple of years. The text says, then David said to all of his officials, everyone who was with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee the city or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave here immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and he will put this entire city to the sword. David knew if I stay here and try to defend this city, if Absalom takes the city, he will assume everyone in the city sided with me. He will put everyone in this city to the sword. So David abandons the throne to save the city. And once again, once again, remember? Once again, he's a fugitive. For he finds himself running from the place that he considered his home, running from the people who supposedly loved him. Once again, he's a fugitive, but this time he's not 22. This time he's 61 years old. This was not the dream. 
This was not supposed to happen. This was not the way he was supposed to spend this season of his life. This was not what he expected. His dreams were not coming true. And as it turned out, they could not come true. And there we are. There we are. This is where, once again, our lives at some point in the past, now or in the future, intersect with the story of David. Here we are, heartbroken, disappointed, maybe angry, frustrated with God, maybe looking for someone to blame. Maybe you've decided to blame God. After all, where is God? God could have kept this from happening, right? What's the point of going on? What's the point of trying? Why even try? I mean, you hung in there with him year after year after year. You hung in there with her year after year after year. And now look what she's done. Now look what he's done. You waited and you waited and you waited, but you waited for what? You raised him right. You raised her right. You don't deserve to be treated this way. And look at the way he's treating you. Look at the way she's treating you. You were honest. You were told that if I'm honest, good things happen. I was honest and I lost that job. You've worked hard, but it hasn't really worked out. And this, 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 this is when we oftentimes make things worse for ourselves, isn't it? This is because we're so angry and we're so hurt and we're so frustrated with God and we're so disappointed with God. We hurt ourselves, which creates more regret. We create more debt. There's more pain relievers and yet there's more pain. But this isn't the first time David had faced a situation like this. And David remembered because the first time he fled the kingdom, he took matters into his own hands, but he'd learned something along the way. And this is the lesson from the life of David today. And this is the lesson from this season of the life of David that we all need to take to heart. So here's what happened. The whole caravan of all of his family, all of his family's family, anybody who's a supporter of David, they are now filing out of the city, trying to get out of Jerusalem before Absalom and his men and his followers get there. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. So David isn't even sure where they're going at this point, we don't know. He just knows this, we've gotta get out of the city and anybody who supports me needs to get out of the city. Zadok, who was the high priest, Zadok was there too, leaving the city with David. And all of the Levites, these were the, this is the tribe that takes care of all the sacrificial system, were with him. And they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now this is really, really important. And when you read these stories quickly, you miss the significance of this. The Ark of the Covenant of God represented the presence of God for ancient Israel. You could not be closer to God as far as ancient Israel was concerned as you were when you were in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. If you took the Ark of the Covenant with you into battle, you were sure to win. It represented the presence of God. So when David saw them bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the people who were in the city, it looked as if the presence of God was leaving the city and going with David. But the implications of that were a bit overwhelming for David. In fact, David decided this feels manipulative. And listen to what he said. He said, then, to the, they, um, then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back to the city. Now, the people who were around David and heard him made this com- take, uh, make this command or make this decision, I guarantee you they moaned. Because one of the things that gave them courage and confidence was they were following the king and they were following the presence of God. And for David to command them to take the presence of God, the blessing of God, the ark of the covenant, back into the city, It was almost as if David was saying, Absalom is in the right and we are in 
the wrong. But listen to David's explanation as to why he told Zadok to take the Ark of the Covenant back to the city. This is so powerful. He said this, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it, the Ark, and his dwelling place, the Ark, again. If God chooses to bring me back, God chooses to bring me back, but I am not taking matters into my own hands. But if he says, David said to Zadok, but if he, God says, I'm not pleased with you, David, David says, then I am ready. And then here's the punctuation. Let him, talking about God, let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Not my will, thy will. Every time I do my will, I mess things up. Every time I have my way, I get in the way. Not my will, thy will. This is, this is the lesson, this is so powerful. David lost his world. He did not lose his confidence in God. David's entire world is upside down. He does not lose his faith in God. He doesn't reject the law. He doesn't consider himself above the law. David understands his flawed. He is a flawed man. He is not a perfect man, but he refuses to be the king. David never lost sight of the fact that he is simply a king. He lost his world. He did not lose his confidence or his faith in God. He chose not to abandon God when it appeared that God had chosen or God chose to abandon him. I'm not going to war with my son. I'm not gonna risk the city. This is not about me. God put me in place. God will choose how and when and where I am replaced. Wow. And he leaves the city and he leaves the ark. Absalom shows up at the city and he takes the city without a fight, but it's a hollow victory because he has the capital, but he doesn't have the king. So David and his entourage, they end up in a city called Machaniam, Machaniam. And he hears that Absalom is coming and he realizes he has no choice but to meet his own son in battle. So he divides his soldiers up into three groups. This was so smart. And he puts a different commander over each of the thirds. And then he gives them these very, very explicit instructions. And he gives the commanders these instructions so that all the troops can hear. And here's what he said. He said, when you catch up with Absalom's army and when you catch up with Absalom, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. I realize this is a war. I realize it's gonna be chaotic, but if there's any way to spare my son's life, I want you to spare his life. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So everybody knew if you find Absalom, you take Absalom alive and you bring him to David. David's generals insist that David not join them in battle. So he stays on the wall of the city and he watches his soldiers march out to confront his son in battle. Now the text tells us that this battle did not take place on an open plain, but it actually took place in the forest of Ephraim. The forest of Ephraim, which meant superior numbers meant very little, experience and organization and communication mattered more. And fortunately, David was wise enough. We don't know if David's men drew them into the forest. We don't know why the battle was in the forest, but David's men were better organized and to fight under those conditions because he had three commanders, whereas Absalom's troops were all looking to him for leadership. And the text says this, there Israel's troops were routed by David's men and the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men died. 
The battle spread out and over the entire countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Eventually Absalom is caught and instead of being held prisoner and taken back to David, Joab butchers his son as the army watches. Absalom, once Absalom was taken out of action, once people knew he was dead, his army completely immediately stopped fighting. They threw down their weapons and the text says they all just went home. David is told that Absalom is dead and he mourns the loss of his son. In fact, he mourns the loss of his son to such a degree that the soldiers are afraid to celebrate their victory. He returns to Jerusalem as the king, but his world would never ever be the same. And nine years later, he died at the age of 70. Now, it really, it really speaks to the authenticity of this account that the biographers seem to have done nothing to hide from us, all of David's faults and failures and flaws. And the thing that's so amazing and the thing I want us to take away as we wrap up this, this narrative of David is that with all of his flaws, he never lost his confidence in God. When things did not go his way and it was somebody else's fault, when things didn't go his way and it was his own fault, with all of that, he never lost his confidence in, in God. That, that David's somewhat sad ending, and it is kind of a sad ending, his somewhat sad ending reminds us of something extraordinarily important. So if you've been daydreaming or you know, thinking about something else, I really need you to listen to this next part because this is, this is the takeaway, simply this. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. The foundation of faith is not everything going our way. The foundation of our faith is not happily ever after endings. In fact, it's always a mistake, even though we all tend to do this. It's always a mistake to wrap our faith in God. It is always a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams or even the answers to our prayer. It is always a mistake to wrap our confidence in God around the fulfillment of our dreams. My dreams came true, God is good. My dreams didn't come true, I don't think there's a God. It's always a mistake to wrap our faith and to wrap our confidence in God around our dreams coming true or even the answers to prayer. Because dreams that don't come true and prayers that don't get answered say nothing about the presence or the goodness or the faithfulness of God. They say nothing about God's presence or his lack of activity. David, I think of all the people in the Old Testament would be the quickest to remind us that when we feel forsaken, we're mistaken. That we're mistaken when we feel forsaken. That when circumstances don't go our way, when our dreams can't come true, to assume from circumstances that God is not real or God is not present, David would say, no, don't make that mistake. Because through all the highs and lows and through all the ups and downs, God was with me. And we would do well with our own circumstances and our own broken hearts and our own anger and our own dreams that can't or won't come true to join David in this extraordinary, extraordinary statement that he makes when he's leaving the city, all hope is gone. He doesn't know if he will ever see the city again. He doesn't know if he will ever be restored. He doesn't know what's gonna happen in this season of his life. To join him when he makes this incredible, incredible statement. If, if, I don't know the future, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, not my will, thy will. Thy will, not my will. I know what I want things to turn. I know how I want things to turn out. I know how I want things to go. I know how I've prayed they go. I, know, I thought for sure they would go this way, but not my will, thy will be done. I may lose my world, 
but I will not lose my confidence or my faith in God. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Your Move podcast and be sure to check out our website where you'll find your next step, including resources like our free conversation starters based on today's episode. You can access those by simply clicking on the link in our show notes. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next time and we will continue to explore how to make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. Thanks for listening.